How do you think of Jesus? If you picture Jesus, what would you picture him as being like? Which of those two would you be more likely to picture him as being like? That one's a bit dark, sorry, but I hope you can see there's some sort of warrior knight on a horse with a blood-stained sword. I'm, I'm a bit apologetic about putting that up because pictures of Jesus are horrible, aren't they? I really can't stand them. But you've all seen things like that. I hope you don't think of Jesus in visual terms. We don't know what he looked like. The only clues the Bible gives us is that he probably looked a lot older than he was when people guessed his age and that there was nothing attractive in him to look at. But I wanted to use pictures to show the way that Jesus is generally thought of is far from one of the Bible's big themes, which is Jesus is a victorious warrior. That picture, the warrior on a horse, is the more realistic of the two. Let's get rid of it now so we don't have to look at horrible pictures. He is a warrior who defeats his enemies. We've been in Genesis 1 to 3 for quite a few weeks now. Let's turn back to Genesis, well, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. It's the start of the Bible, and so it introduces many of the themes in the Bible. And it introduces us in chapter 3 to God promising to send a saviour. He's going to send someone to put things right. And he's introduced here in chapter 3 in a way that he is repeatedly shown across the Bible as a victorious warrior. So we're going to start in Genesis 3 and then we're going to move across the Bible to see Genesis 3 is introducing the way Jesus is going to be shown across the Bible. And we're doing this to see a theme that ties together the whole Bible. And you can see this is one unified book written by many people over hundreds of years and yet one unified book because it comes from God. But more importantly... We're doing this not just so you get an overview of the Bible, but so you see Jesus and come under the command of this victorious warrior. So, Genesis chapter 3, let's see the theme here in chapter 3 that we'll then trace through the Bible. And because we're not going to be working through one part of the Bible like we normally do, and that can make it harder to follow, a flowchart's going to come up on the screen of where we're going in the Bible, well, when we get there. So, Genesis chapter 3 tells us about an enemy, and he appears here in chapter 3 as a snake, but he's actually an angel. An angel who wasn't satisfied with his position under God, a glorious, powerful position, but under God, and he wasn't satisfied with that, and so he wanted to take God's place and God's power, and his name now is Satan. And here in chapter 3, he thinks he's won a great victory, because God had made something better than angels. God had made humans. They're better than angels because they were made to be God's image and God's representatives. Under God, but with a glorious position. But Satan has got them to be like him. He's persuaded these humans to not be satisfied with their position under God, but to want to take God's place and power, just like he tried. And they've listened to Satan, who's appeared to them in a form of a snake. 
and they've rebelled against God. And Satan thinks he's won. And he thinks God's plan is in tatters. But he's so wrong. Because God turns up and speaks. Let's read it now. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God shows that he's still in control and Satan hasn't won. I'll point out four ways to you. First of all, who does all the speaking in verses 14 and 15? God. What does Satan say? Nothing. Nothing. He hasn't been able to say anything across all of those verses. Nothing. He is silenced before God. He's making clear who's in control, and it's not Satan. Oh yes, he's done a lot of damage, but he's not got control. God is in control, and his plan has not got shredded. Here's another way it's shown. What is all this in verse 14 about crawling on your belly and eating dust? Now, if you know anything about snakes, they don't actually crawl, because they haven't got legs, and they don't actually eat dust. But you have to think bigger about the meaning. What's the meaning of this? Well, Satan wanted to put himself up in God's place, and instead he's put down into the lowest place. Every time you see a snake, which is not often in England, so think of it on TV or in pictures, you see a snake, and it's slithering along the ground in the dust, it's a reminder Satan has been put down. His plan didn't succeed. God's in control and he's put him down. Here's another way it's shown. Satan thought he'd got humanity on his side in this great rebellion where they were going to replace God. But, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. It said there are going to be people who will refuse to be on his side. They're going to be against Satan. There will be people, yes, who are like him, but there will be people who are very much not like him. And there is going to be, down through human history, a battle between those who take Satan's character and those who are against him. He hasn't got all humanity on his side. And then there is going to be one person in particular who won't just wage war against Satan, he'll crush him. Verse 15, the second half. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, we need to look a bit closer actually at this verse 15 because do you see there in the first half, if you've got a Bible open, it talks about the offspring of the woman. The woman clearly is Eve. Adam and Eve were the only people around then. And it talks about offspring of Eve, people who will come from her, people down her family tree. And this word offspring, it can be plural, lots of people, or it can be singular, one person. That's true in English, it's true in the Hebrew this was first written in. And in the first half it's plural, there are going to be many people who are against Satan. 
But in the second half of the verse, it becomes singular. Look at verse 15. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's going to be one person who's going to be the offspring of the woman and like a person stamping on a snake, he's going to crush its head, but he's going to get bitten on the heel, injured in the process. This is the Bible's first promise of a saviour. Such a significant verse, because for the first, there was no saviour needed before, chapter 3, and now a saviour is needed, and very quickly God promises one, and he's promised to someone who will do battle and win. Think of the picture of the knight on horseback. He's promised as a victorious warrior. And that sets the storyline of the whole Bible. The whole Bible really flows out of Genesis 3, verse 15. As we move on in the Bible, into the Old Testament, what is happening? The Old Testament can be hard work, can't it? It's a big book, it's a complex book. But in one way, it has a simple theme, which is looking for the promised offspring who's going to be a victorious warrior. And you look, but you get disappointments. So, for example, if we just go on to the next chapter, chapter 4, Eve has offspring, she has two sons. Is one of them going to be the promised one? We look and we get disappointments because one is murdered and the other is a murderer. Neither are the promised offspring. We look and we get disappointment. And so we keep looking and we move on and eventually you get to another offspring of Eve called Abraham and you find another promise. This this offspring of Eve that's been promised is also going to be an offspring of Abraham. And now we're promised, as well as crushing the snake's head, he's going to bring blessing to all the people groups on earth. By crushing the snake's head, he's going to bring worldwide blessing. And so we keep looking for the offspring and we keep getting more disappointments. So, for example, a while after Abraham, you get to Moses and he looks like he's the one. He looks so good. He comes at a time when Pharaoh rules. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, children here, do you know about Pharaoh of Egypt? Have you seen? We might get a picture up of him. What is that on his head? Can you see what he's got on his head? Oh, it's interesting. He's got a snake. In fact, two snakes on his head because he worships snakes. That's interesting. He does the work of snake Satan because he tries to kill all the offspring of Abraham. And then the Bible's finished, isn't it? But Moses leads God's people to victory. And Pharaoh and his armies are destroyed. Moses is a victorious warrior. Is he the promised offspring? No. Because his books end with what? Moses dead. And he can't even get into the promised land because he's failed and he's dead. And so we keep looking for the promised offspring and we get, a long time later, to a king called David. He's king over God's people. And we find another promise. We find the offspring of Eve, who's also the offspring of Abraham, will also be the offspring of David. And he will be a warrior king who will be victorious. He will crush his enemies. You can read this in many places, but this is why we read Psalm 72. hope you were listening. We're 
you might have noticed we've jumped out of our normal pattern of where we should be in the Psalms, because Psalm 72 is a prophecy of the son of David who will rule. What does it say about him? I'll read to you. It says in verse 4, he will defend the afflicted among the people. He will save the children of the needy. He's so gentle, but it then says, and he will crush the oppressor. Does that ring a bell, crushing the oppressor? And then it says, verse 8, he will rule to the ends of the earth. Oh, he's going to bring blessing to the nations by ruling them. But not everyone is going to like his rule. Some will oppose him. What will happen to them? Verse 9, his enemies will lick the dust. Does that sound familiar? You're picturing a snake's tongue flicking in and out among the dust, but it's down there in the dust, defeated. But to those who come under his care, what's he like? Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He's going to crush the oppressor and he's going to care for the oppressed. This is the promised king. And so we, after David, keep looking. When is this offspring going to come? And we keep getting disappointments. So, for example, David has a son, an offspring called Solomon, and he rules, and his kingdom is richer than any before, and his power is vaster than any before, and he's wiser than anyone before. You think, it must be him. The offspring's come. And how does Solomon end? by marrying loads of wives and going and committing idolatry and dying a failure. Disappointment. And so for hundreds of years after David, it's disappointment after disappointment. Until we get to a baby who doesn't look promising and he's born of a woman. That's interesting, isn't it, that Genesis 3 says the woman's seed... Where did you get your family name from? Now, I'm not sure if it's true in every culture, but I think in a lot of cultures, where do you get your family name from? Your father, don't you? In most cultures, the family tree is traced down through the father. But Genesis 3 said the seed of a woman. And we get to a a baby born of a woman. In fact, miraculously, with no man involved. And he's born when God's people are oppressed by an enemy, the Romans. And he's born into obscure poverty in a stable. And he grows up into an ordinary-looking carpenter. He doesn't look promising, but he makes big claims. Now, some of you will have noticed that in the summer here, we lock the church gates. Do you know why we lock the church gates? Because there were gypsies around and it was reported they might come and stay on our car park. And although they have no right to be there, they're very hard to get rid of. It's the same when squatters get into a house. Well, this Jesus, who I've just been talking about, he made big claims. He said, Satan is like a squatter. The world is like a house with Satan like a squatter in it. And he's got no right to be there, but he's hard to get out. But this Jesus said, I'm stronger than him, and I'm going to tie him up, and I'm going to throw him out. In other words, he was claiming to be the promised offspring of Genesis 3, verse 15. But look at him at 33 years old. He's nailed to a cross. And he's so weak and pathetic looking looking, and then dead. He's just another disappointment. 
No, he's not. He's doing Genesis 3.15. He's stamping on the snake's head and he's getting bitten in the process. Satan strikes his body with a Roman whip and with nails through hands and feet. Satan strikes his emotions with injustice from the establishment and abuse from onlookers. Satan strikes his mind with temptations. Is, are you really God's son? Is this really God's way? Is this really going to work? Why not come down from that cross if you are who you say you are? But Jesus crushes the snake's head because he doesn't come down. He stays up on that cross and trusting his father until he can say, it is finished, father, into your hands I commit my spirit and Satan is defeated. Now, we mustn't miss this as one of the ways the Bible describes the cross. Now, we're used to talking about the cross as the place of personal forgiveness for us. True, good, great news. But the Bible describes the cross in a whole variety of ways that all fit together. And one is this, the cross is the place of victory. Some theologians have talked of Jesus turning the cross into a chariot as he rode to victory. So, for example, I'll read you a verse. Don't worry about turning to it unless you want to. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this. God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We tend to think the triumph was three days later at resurrection. No, it says the triumph was at the cross. Picture a soldier in battle, and he's got his machine gun, and he's surrounded by enemies, but he's able to take them down because he's got a machine gun, until his gun jams and someone gets it off him, And then he's just a weak man, surrounded by many others stronger than him. And Colossians 2 says the cross did that to Satan. It disarmed him and made him look pathetic. How did it disarm him? What is Satan's weapon? Do you know what Satan means? It means accuser. And his weapon was he could accuse us of being sinners. He could accuse us of being under the condemnation of God's law and worthy of death and therefore let me take them with me to hell. But Colossians 2 says that condemnation, that judgment of the law has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. Roman crosses tended to have a sign over them that said why the person was being executed. And Colossians 2 says, in God's eyes, the sign over Jesus was your sin, your guilt, your pride, your lust, your malice, your gossip, your irreverence to God. All those times he's come below first in your priorities. You worshipping other things instead of him. If you belong to Jesus, it's all there on the sign over his head, nailed to his cross. And that means Satan is disarmed. He's lost all power to accuse you. 
It's put this way in another verse that says the cross is a place of victory. I'll read you Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He took the accusation away so the devil can no longer say, look at that one, deserves death. Because it's already been paid. But Christians still die. How can it be said his power has been taken away? Christians still die, don't they? Well, not according to the New Testament. That's odd, isn't it? According to the New Testament, you'd never find in the New Testament it's speaking of believers dying. No, it speaks of believers falling asleep. Because for them, death has been turned from being the gateway to hell into being the gateway to being with their Saviour. Because Satan can no longer stand at the gate and accuse and say, you've got to go this way. Genesis 3.15 happened at the cross of Jesus. The warrior is victorious. But it's 2019. The cross wasn't the end of the story. There's a lot more to go. So please keep with me as we go through some of it now. Jesus has his victory, and what do we find next? Victory means the victorious warrior rules. So he rises from the dead, and what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because he's the victorious warrior, he's now the king who rules. And because he's the victorious warrior, Satan can't keep the nations deceived. I'm going to read to you from the end of the Bible. You can turn there if you like or just listen. It's Revelation chapter 20, right at the end of the Bible. And it says this, Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, notice the snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, you have to remember, Revelation is a book of picture language. Satan isn't really locked up in a pit. It's picture language. But it's saying his power to do something has been taken away. His power to do what? Well, it was in verse 3. His power to keep the nations deceived. Yes, Satan is still alive, but he's like a bear that's been fatally wounded and he thrashes around as he's dying and he's taking a long time to die. And his claws can do damage, but he's dying. And so Jesus could say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. There will be attacks. He doesn't say the gates of hell have gone away. He says they won't win. I will build my church. Satan's power to deceive the nations. Well, he does a lot of deceiving, but he's not in control. Imagine it like this. Let's have a picture up on the screen. I love pictures like this. Satellite image of Europe at night. And probably we could try to identify which little spot of light is Loughborough and Nottingham and Leicester and so on. Now, oh, we're getting it pointed out. No, you're not quite right. Anyway, 
Imagine a spiritual version of that, and it's the spiritual light. Yeah? And before the time of Jesus, you'd have some little specks of light around Jerusalem and the rest of the world in darkness. But after Jesus, the light spreads. And yes, Satan, he's like a wounded bear and he rages and he throws his claws around and he gets Christians persecuted, but he can't stop it spreading. And the light spreads across the Mediterranean. And the light spreads into Europe. And it goes across into India. And the light spreads across North Africa. And the light spreads into the interior of Africa and across Asia and to the Americas until 2019, there isn't a country in the world without some spiritual light, without those who've bowed the knee to Jesus the King. Satan can't stop the light spreading. Now, do you see the promise of the offspring of Eve and of Abraham, and of David, all coming together. Satan is crushed at the cross. And so blessing can come to the nations through the spreading of the rule of the son of David, who is the king. And then the end of the war will come. Then the end of the war will come. Now, in the last year of World War II, Stalingrad had already been defeated, The beaches of Normandy had already been taken and there was no doubt who would win the war for that last year. But there were still many battles to go. Hitler's defeat had been sealed. It was going to happen. But from his Berlin bunker where he was trapped and doomed, he still sent thousands of people to their deaths. He still inflicted suffering and misery, even though... It was certain he was going to lose. He still did damage. And that's our situation now. Jesus has won the decisive battle. But the enemy's still holding out. And he's still doing damage. But it has been made certain that one day the victorious warrior will march in to his world and end the war. And so the end of the Bible describes it like, and he read to us from Revelation 19. I'll just read a couple of verses again. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. And we might like to think, oh yeah, robe dipped in blood because he died on the cross. But in the context, actually, the robe dipped in blood is it's spattered with the blood of his enemies because he's coming to end the war. And on Revelation 19 goes to describe Jesus as this victorious warrior, finally crushing his enemies completely and caring for his people eternally. Well, I hope you cope with that very rushed tour of the Bible. And I hope you can see there you've got the whole of the Bible as the outworking of Genesis 3, verse 15. A victorious warrior is going to come, and he will defeat the enemy. But let's end with this. What does it mean for us? What does all that mean for you and me? Well, there's one very simple thing it means. It means this, get on the winning side.
Because it's completely clear what the winning side is. And it's completely clear that the losing side will not cope. You can't win against Jesus. Are you holding out against him? Or maybe you think, no, I'm not, but I'm a neutral. You cannot be a neutral in this battle and hope the battle just sort of breezes by you. To say, I'll just get on with living life my way is not neutral, it is rebellion. Because it isn't your life to be lived your way. Jesus is the king. You won't escape the victorious warrior. He isn't that soppy person in the pictures who'll just pat you on the back and say, never mind. He's a fierce warrior. You must get on his side. But now is the time when he's welcoming people onto his side. Quickly, before it's too late, surrender to him. Because now is the time he's accepting people who surrender to him. Speak to him. Pray to him. Plead with him for mercy. Ask him to take you in. He promises, whoever comes to me, I will certainly not drive away. Will you get on his side? Will you come under his command? What's it like on his side? Do you remember Psalm 72? It says he crushes his enemies and he cares for his people. The Bible is amazing what it puts together. I love Psalm 2. Psalm 2 puts together this. It says he's a warrior with a rod of iron and he smashes his enemies, but he's like a mountainside refuge that shelters his people. In fact, Jesus himself put it even more amazingly. He said he's not just like a mountainside refuge that shelters his people. He said he's like a hen who shelters her chicks under her wings. In other words, not just safe, but close, warm, loved, cared for. The Bible's amazing. Jesus is strong to crush those who hold out against him and so gentle to care for those who flee to him. Remember, that's not Jesus as the therapist. We often turn him into Jesus as our therapist. We often turn the Bible into a book of sayings to make us feel better while we stick to our agenda. No, it's not. The Bible is the message of Jesus as the victorious warrior. But it's full of encouragement to those who come on his side and march in step with him under his command. People turn the Bible, don't they, into the, this book of sayings, make us feel warm while we follow our own agenda. So they might have, this isn't wrong, by the way, to have, up on their wall, a nice picture, and it says, be still and know that I am God. Or you might put it up on Facebook, and a nice saying to make you feel warm. But we need more than nice sayings to make us feel warm. If you're persecuted in North Korea, or just struggling with life in Loughborough, So actually, it's good news that be still and know that I am God isn't just a nice, warm saying. Do you know where it's from? It's from a psalm. I think it's Psalm 46. And it's a psalm all about battle. And it's a psalm about God's King Jesus winning that battle. And so, if you're in the battle, and if you're in the struggle and needing more than warm words, you can be still and know that he is God. He will win and you are secure if you are in his army under his command. 
Let's put up with those two pictures again once more. That Jesus is the victorious warrior and not the soppy weakling is good news. If you're realistic about this world, if you've experienced the troubles of life, we need more than warm words. We need someone who can win for us. We need someone strong enough to crush the oppressor and to care for the oppressed. That's Jesus. Are you on his side? Let's pray.